Hello, and welcome to episode 87 of True Crime Finland, Kellari Surmat, The Cellar Murders. As the title already suggests, this is a true crime podcast, and it details cases that can be of a disturbing and violent nature. Because of this, I encourage you to use your discretion and stop listening or skip ahead if you need to. If you're ready, let's get started. On Saturday, the 7th of August in 1976, 25-year-old Susanne Lindholm was working a shift at the check-in counter for Finnair at the helsinki Vanta airport. Lindholm was planning on going out after her shift. She tried to tempt some of her co-workers to come with her, but none of them were in the mood that day. Since they did not want to tag along, she called her sister Camilla, who agreed to go with her. They decided to meet up at Hotel Haga, located in western Helsinki. One of Susanne's male co-workers working the same shift offered to drive her as he lived nearby. Susanne accepted the offer, and after nine o'clock in the evening, they got into his yellow Wartburg and headed to Haga. Once they made it to their destination, the co-worker dropped her off on the side of the road next to the hotel and then started driving back home. After spending some time at the hotel with her sister Camilla, the two headed to the Helsinki club. At the club, they met a Norwegian man who was on a business trip in Finland. He was staying at Hotel Hesperia at the time and invited the two sisters to join him at the hotel, located in the center of Helsinki. Susanne and the Norwegian man ended up leaving the club together, while Camilla decided to call it a night at this point. When they got to the hotel, Susanne and the Norwegian hung out in the lobby area for a while, before heading upstairs to the Norwegian's room. In the room, he offered her one more drink, and she accepted. Susanne had a shift scheduled for the following day, and once it was around three in the morning, she realized she should go home to get some sleep before work. The Norwegian offered to accompany her, but she refused, preferring to go alone. In any case, They shared their contact info, and Susanne promised she would call him. Susanne lived about four kilometers away on Sofianlehdonkatu in Gabrilam with her family. She was seen standing in front of the hotel ready to leave, and according to witness statements, was offered a ride by some of the drivers hanging out in front of the hotel. She did not accept, however, and after three in the morning, she was then seen walking from Wannerheimintie in the direction of Helsingingkatu. These statements would suggest she may have walked, but to this day, it is unknown how she made it home. There were no more buses at that hour, 
and according to some sources, she did not have any money for a cab. The last sighting of her was in front of her apartment building, talking with a man. This is where the traces end. At four in the morning on Sunday, the 8th of August, an older woman living on the first floor of the apartment building woke up to a woman's muted cry of help. At the time, she did not think anything of it and went back to sleep. Later that day, at around 1 in the afternoon, a resident of the building was fetching his kids' bicycles from the storage cellar of the B stairway when he found Lindholm laying on the floor. She was fully clothed with a ski pole and a plastic kit spade placed either on top of her or next to her. She was also missing two of her golden rings that she had been wearing at the time, as well as her wallet. The neighbor reported his finding to the janitor, who then called the police. The only way to enter this space was using a key, as the front door, as well as the door to the storage cellar space, were locked. The janitor had confirmed this the previous evening, and the person who found Lindholm had also entered by using his key. There were no signs of break-in. Lindholm had suffered brutal sexual violence. She had been strangled with a thinner scarf and suffered blows to her head. It was not clear if the perpetrator had hit her in the head or if she suffered these injuries when falling down on the concrete floor. The cause of death has not been revealed to the public. In any case, it was clear that the perpetrator had not even attempted to cover their tracks or clean the scene afterwards. The police started investigating the case and interviewing everyone and anyone who could have possibly seen her on her way home or knew anything about what may have happened. They walked, drove, and cycled the route from Hotel Hesperium and timed it. The investigators theorized that Susanne had not walked home and instead someone gave her a ride, either by car or by bicycle. At the time, though, the police were in a tight spot as they had limited resources to investigate the case. DNA technology was not yet available, and fiber technology, such as fiber tape, was only introduced in the 80s. The information and evidence gathered from the case was still saved in three different databases a method database, a fingerprint database, and a photo database. The method database was utilized to try to find similar cases where the perpetrator might be the same. With the samples they got from the scene, the investigators were, however, able to find out the perpetrator's blood type. 
This served mostly to rule out suspects. The police interviewed about a thousand people regarding the case. At first, they had a few suspects, but all their alibis held up and the police were not able to make a breakthrough. As time passed, the case slowly started growing cold. The case of Susanna Lindholm was treated as a one-off case until a few years later. On the 5th of December in 1980, 41-year-old Seiya Kekkonen was preparing to go to a Christmas party organized by a grocery store at restaurant Kaivohuone in the center of Helsinki. She mainly worked as a postwoman, but did a few hours a week at the grocery store to receive some extra income for her family of four, that included her husband Otto and their son and daughter. The family lived together in Kontula, located in eastern Helsinki. That evening, her husband Otto drove her to the party. Their son rode with them as well to go to the center of Helsinki. The party was packed with accounts stating there were over 600 people in restaurant Kaivohone that night. This was a record amount for the restaurant at the time. Seyake Konen did not really stand out in the crowd. Instead, she was like any other party goer, eating and drinking. She was last seen dancing with someone, and afterwards, she exited the restaurant a bit before closing time. Once the party ended, her husband did not pick her up, but instead, she came home by cab. The next day, which was Independence Day, the 6th of December, a neighbor was fetching a sledge for their child when she found Seiya laying in the cellar corridor. The two were actually co-workers, but the woman did not recognize Seiya immediately. Shocked, she ran outside and told another neighbor what had happened. Together, they returned to the cellar, but this neighbor did not recognize Seiya either. The man alarmed the third neighbor, who also arrived at the scene and finally identified the woman. At this point, he also reported seeing Seiya's husband Otto standing in the changing room of the sauna, located on the cellar floor. When asked, Otto told the neighbor he was waiting for the police to arrive. When she was found, Seiya had been clothed, wearing her dress and a jacket. However, her tights were half on and half off, and her dress was lifted. As in the case of Susanna Lindholm, the police have never confirmed the manner or cause of death. But there are several sources claiming Seiya had been sexually assaulted and strangled.
Only a few months later, on Friday, the 30th of January in 1981, 42-year-old Oner Vakedola had been spending the evening at a bar in Gallo, in the inner city, with some friends of hers. She was on disability pension and had some more time on her hands because of this. She frequented these bars and could be seen in the area often. At around 9 in the evening, she went to her friend's place on Storangato and stayed there for about 2 hours until 11. At this point, it was reported that she had told the friend she was tired and was going to go home. Onerva lived in eastern Basila, only about one and a half kilometers away. Apparently, she did not go home directly though, as she was seen standing in the crossroads between Alexis Kivengato and Sturangato, a bit before midnight. From there, she left to go home and walked the 15-minute journey. She did not arrive alone. Around midnight, she was seen by several witnesses outside the D stairway of the building, talking with an unknown young male. Witnesses later reported that they were arguing. The man wanted to go into the cellar space, but Onerva did not want to let him in. After a while though, she finally opened the door for him and the two went inside. The next day, which was Saturday, the 31st of January, at 6 in the morning, a neighbor found Onerva Getola laying on the cellar floor. According to the reports, she had been sexually assaulted and killed, and was missing her brown leather handbag. Based on how she was found halfway in the laundry room closet, it seemed like she had first ended up in the laundry room with the man, where the situation escalated. Onerva had been able to escape into the corridor, but the perpetrator caught up to her, killed her, and then tried to hide her in the laundry room closet. Based on witness testimonies, the police were able to draft a sketch of the man seen arguing with Onarvaketola. He was described to be about 25 years old and about 170 to 175 centimeters tall with an average build as well as dark hair and a dark mustache. As for his clothing, he had been wearing a dark beanie, a dark blue jacket, jeans, and brown boots. The sketch was subsequently published in the media and as printouts. The police received quite a few tips based on the sketch and even questioned several men who fit the description but they were not able to make a breakthrough or identify the man. It was suspected he may have changed his appearance after the events of that night, but since the sketch had already been widely distributed, this image of the man 
most likely stayed in people's minds. Without a breakthrough, this case also started going cold. On the 6th of July that same year, in 1981, 18-year-old Helena Mandola was spending the evening at her friend's house in the center of Helsinki. She lived with her parents in Hagen and was to return home for the night. At 11 in the evening, she got on a bus to go home, but did not make it. Her parents got worried when she did not show and called her friend, who told them she had already left and got on the bus. Her parents went out to look for her in the area around the bus stop. Near an underpass, they found her sleeping bag and called the police. The police started search efforts, and a few hours later, they discovered Helena Mandura covered with sticks and branches laying in a ditch. She was found partly undressed and had been raped and killed. When investigating the area further, the police also found some of her belongings, such as her purse. With no leads to go on, this case went cold for about six months before another incident in the beginning of 1982. A 13-year-old girl was on her way to school waiting for a bus on the side of a busy road when a man pulled up. The man forced her to get into the car and drove her to a remote area. He raped her and then afterwards tried to sweet-talk her, going as far as to ask her if she would like to meet the next day. Luckily, the girl got away, and once she got to school, she told her teacher about what had happened. The teacher immediately reported the incident to the police. The police then were able to arrest the man by waiting for him at the same bus stop he had told the girl to meet him for a date. When the man pulled up, the police quickly captured and arrested him. The perpetrator was a local bus driver, Yalo Eetu Seppanen, who had a history of sexual crimes. He was actually recorded in the police's registry and had been questioned previously in relation to the murder of Helena Mandura, but somehow managed to explain himself out of trouble. The Visti police quickly contacted the Helsinki police, and Sepponen immediately became a suspect in the murder of Helena Mandula as well. Not long after, during questioning sessions with the police, he actually admitted to the murder. He told the police that on the night of the murder, he was on his bike and had started following Mandela at random. Soon he caught up to her and knocked her unconscious. He then dragged her to the nearby woods, raped her, and strangled her to death.
before covering her body. He then took her purse and sleeping bag and tried to hide them. Afterwards, he rode back home. The confession contained so many details, the police did not have any reason to suspect his story. Through pioneering work with fibers, the police were also able to match the fibers of Sepanen's tracksuit to those found on Mandela's clothing. On the 29th of December in 1982, Sepanen was convicted to 13 years in prison for murder committed with diminished responsibility. For the murder of Helena Mandela, he received 11 years, and for the rape of the 13-year-old, two years in prison. When the case went to the Court of Appeals, the charge of murder was changed to manslaughter, but the sentence remained almost the same, 13 years and 5 months in prison. Sepanen was released towards the end of the 80s, but did not stop committing crimes. In 1996, he was again convicted of fornication. The murder of Helena Mantula was the only homicide he was known to have committed. However, because of some similarities between the cases of Helena Mantula and those of Susanna Lindholm, Seye Kekkonen, and Oner Vaketola, which were, by this point, still unsolved, the police tried to find connections already early on. It was suspected Sipanen may have committed all the murders. This possibility was first explored in the 80s during the investigation of Mantula's murder, and then again in the 2000s but the investigators were never able to establish a clear connection. Sepanen finally died in a traffic accident in 2015 at 70 years old. The case of Helena Mandela was solved, but the so-called cellar murders remain cold to this day. As years have passed, the police have had their suspicions of possible perpetrators, but there was never enough evidence to make a case. The police are also naturally withholding information that only the perpetrator would know, such as the specific cause or manner of death. These details have never been made public in any of the three cases. As for the theory of a possible serial killer, according to the ex-chief of the Helsinki Police Violent Crime Unit, Juha Rautaheimo, the three cases are most likely not related. Of course, since the investigation is still ongoing, the police can neither exhaustively confirm or deny any theories. According to some sources, the samples gathered from at least one of the scenes have since been used up and are no longer available for modern DNA testing. According to Raudahemo, it is unlikely these cases will be solved 
unless the perpetrator or perpetrators come forward and confess. The Helsinki police still welcome any tips or information about the cases of Susanne Lindholm, Peja Kekkonen, and Onar Vaketola. If you would like to know more about how the police's methods have evolved over the years, I highly recommend the memoirs of the ex-chief of the Helsinki Police Violent Crime Unit, Juha Raudaheimo, called Hermo, Murharyhman Mies. This book was one of my sources for this episode. Thank you so much for listening to the 87th episode of True Crime Finland, Crime Stories from the Cold North. If you would like to support this show, you can do that on Patreon, where you can donate as little as $2 a month and in return get exclusive access to ad-free and early episodes and other rewards. Visit the page at patreon.com slash truecrimefinland. Art is by Mark Bernier, and music is Night by VBS Music. You can contact me via email at truecrimefinlandpod at gmail.com. There is a Facebook group called True Crime Finland Podcast, and I'm on Twitter and Instagram at tc underscore Finland. You can find all my episodes on my website at truecrimefinland.squarespace.com or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>